0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's message, Christmas, the Song of Mary, the Magnificat, from Luke 1, 26-56, from our audio collection titled, Evangelical Feast Days. If you'd like to hear more from that audio collection, you can find it on the Canon app. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor nor is there any rock like our God. Let's pray and praise our God together. Father, your Son came into the world to become the light that enlightens every man. The manger at Bethlehem contained the world's only salvation just as the womb of Mary had contained the body of this salvation just a short time before. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Father, we confess that we cannot comprehend your ways and your wisdom. We rejoice in the particularity of your salvation and are glad that we are not saved by a detached idea or abstract notion, but rather by a baby born in Bethlehem, grown to manhood under the power of your spirit, one who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and who rose from the dead on the third day, just as your prophets so faithfully declared. We are here in this particular place, worshiping you, because you were pleased to visit our race in a particular place, and in that we rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. You come here to display your love for God, and this is good, but this cannot be done apart from your love for your neighbor, whom you have seen. The two great commandments are always together in scripture, like husband and wife. A husband is not a wife, but without a wife, he is no husband. The first great command is not the second great commandment, but without love for your neighbor, the greatest commandment is not kept in any fashion. Take care to remember this in the details of our life together. As we seek to worship God in a building less than ideal, as we find ourselves competing for seats or for parking spaces. Remember that your duty in this is always love, a love which extends down into the smallest detail. Sometimes the lack of love can be petty selfishness in a small thing, say, moving someone's Bible when they had saved a seat. Other times the lack of love thinks it means well, as when a courting couple are treated as though the whole thing were a done deal and pleasant inquiries are made about what the middle names of the first three children are going to be. But courtship is not engagement and is not the time for congratulations. The, same, the name for this kind of love, love and all the trifles, is manners. The problem with our breezy dismissal of manners a generation ago is that we have only now discovered that in our folly we threw out many bits of cultural wisdom, a wisdom that had enabled our fathers and mothers to live together in harmony. So as you prepare for worship, do not just get spiritual at some, in some secret place in your heart or mind. Consider your God, consider your neighbor, consider your habits, consider your tongue. And last, do not beat yourself up over, this, over such things. We are all in this together. We are learning together. But let all the lessons be in the direction of visible, tangible, practical love, love in the great things, and love in trifles. This reminds us, of course, of our duty to confess our sins. In scripture it says, thou dost meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers thee in thy ways. Behold, thou wast angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time, and shall we be saved? For all of us have become one, like, who is one become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And there is no one who calls on thy name, who arouses himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hidden thy face from us and hast delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Let's pray and confess our sins together. Father of all righteousness, we confess that we have no righteousness of our own, and that we can only come into your blinding presence if we are clothed in the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. In praying to you in this way, we confess our propensity to lean on our own, on our own understanding, our carnal, our carnal desire to manufacture some goodness of our own, our tendency to drift into self-righteousness. Father, we confess that prostitutes and tax-gatherers are often saved before those who faithfully attend your services, and that in this fallen world, obedience in the externals creates a new set of temptations. We do not seek to avoid those temptations by disobeying in the externals, but rather would be cleansed, heart, soul, mind, and body, and we would worship you today with full knowledge of the forgiveness that you promise through your blessed gospel. Father, teach us so that we might learn. Bring to mind any smugness that we may have embraced, and bring us to the point of individual and true confession and selah. We thank you for your most kind forgiveness, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The fear of man does ensnare. You are here seeking pardon from the only one who can give it, and you are not here in order to cultivate the good opinions of men. As you worship God rightly, he will give you whatever good testimony he wants you to have. So you have confessed honestly and without a lying hypocrisy And so God has heard your cry, come to him now, all together, and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. He invites you to come. Please turn to 2 Corinthians, chapter 10. Mindful of the season, we're going to be taking a two-week break from the series in Deuteronomy, and consider first this week the concept of the Christian year and next week Christmas in particular in 2nd Corinthians chapter 10 verses 4 and 5 the Apostle Paul says this for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. Gracious Father, you are the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and because it was your good pleasure to make him our brother, we may come before you now and call you our Father. You've given us your word, a light in a dark world, and it has shone into darkened and rebellious hearts. We pray that your word would be powerful in our midst this morning, and that every thought would be humbled and made captive, and that every eye would see and every ear would hear. Your son frequently said that those with ears should hear, and so we ask you to give us such ears to hear, that we might be blessed indeed. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come up on the celebration of Christmas as a nation, as a, as a people, both believers and unbelievers together, we need to recall we need to learn how to celebrate such things as the people of god because we can't simply throw everything into a pot and call it good mix it all together and say well uh, our celebration of christmas is all jumbled together with their celebration of christmas and if we do that then we create a situation where uh, insightful christians say that's syncretistic, that's compromised, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. So if we're not careful, we're going to stumble. If we don't pay attention to what the Word of God actually teaches, we're going to stumble perhaps in this direction, perhaps in that direction. We need to understand how to bring, as our text says, every thought captive. Everything that we do should be in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Whether it's changing the oil in your car, whether it's taking care of your house whether it's unpacking the Christmas tree decorations whatever it is you're doing it should be done to the glory of God it should be done toward Him, in the presence of Him. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, Paul beseeches the, the Romans to present their bodies a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable, meaning that the chair that you sit on is an altar. The car that you drive is an altar. The bed that you sleep in is an altar. Everything that you do is to be offered up to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are no exceptions. In this text, the Apostle Paul says, Now we're not going to do this because we're going to go around and make everyone do this, either non believers forced at the point of a sword or professing Christians browbeaten into it by uh, someone shaking a finger under their nose. He says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't make people do this in some carnal fashion, but rather, there's a power from God. The the weapons that Paul uses are powerful through God, mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds. What are those strongholds? Well, the human idolatrous imagination. We can cook up idols, as John Calvin once said, that the, the human mind was a veritable forge of idols. You don't have to wait very long before someone comes up with something that they consider more important than God himself, which is, of course, an idol. The Apostle Paul says that the spiritual weapons that he employs cast down imaginations and every high thing. Well, the high thing, the, the, the disobedience and the sinfulness of the imagination, is seen in what it does. What is it doing? What are these imaginations doing? What are these high things doing? Well, they exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. That which is conducive to the knowledge of God is not under the heading of these imaginations and high things that Paul is warring against, and that which sets itself up against the knowledge of God, that is what he fights. And all these things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God are brought into captivity, every thought to the obedience of Christ. Paul says elsewhere that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This means that the lordship of Jesus Christ extends in your life down to every french fry everything you eat is to be done to the glory of god everything that you do the step you take what whatever it is you say to your wife or say to your husband or how you speak to your children whether it's a passing comment that jesus called an idle word whatever it is everything is to be offered up to god the father through jesus christ to the glory of god now this is what paul is after In short, Paul has a take-no-prisoners approach to the Great Commission, or put another way, take-everything prisoner. In other words, uh, when we say it's a take-no-prisoners approach, we mean it's totally and completely committed to the warfare to the end. You're not fighting for peaceful coexistence. You're not fighting so that you can come to the point where there's some equilibrium between the armies. What Paul says is he wants total and complete and constant warfare until every vain imagination is cast down. In another sense, it's a take-everything-prisoner approach because our weapons, in verse 4, our weapons are not carnal. We don't go out and force people. We don't go out and... Uh, put a sword at their throat and say, would you consider the claims of Christ? Well, tell me more about this Christianity of yours, he says. I'm terribly interested. And, and, and of course, we're going to get spurious conversions if we say this is how we're going to do it. Our weapons are not carnal. But the, although the weapons are not carnal, the weapons that we employ are comprehensive. They extend all along the front. There's not one square inch where the Lord Jesus says to the devil, you can have that. There's no area of human endeavor. There's nothing that we do. There's nothing that we can say that we can say, oh, well, surely God doesn't care what I do here. I can just go mind my own business and do it my own way. Everything is to be a part of your discipleship before God. Now, this extends to the holidays. This extends to our celebration of things like Christmas. Whatever you do, you do it under the Lord. If you celebrate Christmas, you should be doing it under the Lord. If you don't celebrate Christmas the way you grew up celebrating it, that should be done under the Lord, and we're going to consider some of the problems connected with that and other problems connected with the cycle of the church year. As Reformed believers, we have to proceed cautiously here because there is a long tradition in the Reformed community that is suspicious of what is called uh, will worship. That phrase is taken out of Colossians, where someone cooks up something that says, "Surely God is going to be pleased with this." And the Bible nowhere commands it. The Bible nowhere requires it. But someone says, "Well, this is what we we ought to incorporate this into our worship, or we ought to incorporate that into our worship." and among reformed believers there are many who say we should be we should be death we should be very suspicious of anything that any particular element of worship that was cooked up and then imposed by the authority of man and there are many reformed believers who have spoken who have treated christmas celebrations in that way and i want to set this objection in context there are two basic things that we have to keep in mind as as we come into the Reformed faith and as we learn more and more about it, some of you may have been reading literature and you say, well, see, the Puritans in England opposed the celebration of Christmas here, and, and in New England they outlawed the celebration of Christmas, and there were Puritans who used to go out in the fields and, and work on Christmas Day in order to be a good witness to their neighbors who were still caught up in the the uh, popish tomfoolery and so forth and so and you read these things and you say well see to be reformational to be reformed means that you have to be hostile to the very idea of the church year and I think that this is a misunderstanding but I don't think it's primarily a misunderstanding on their part although I think there were some elements of that I think it's a misunderstanding on our part concerning what they were up against first I want to talk about the Puritans and the problem of moral corruption Suppose there was a man who thought it was good to pour used dishwater into the wine that was set aside for a feast, and suppose that the master of the feast saw what had been done, that this person had poured soapy dishwater into the wine, and then threw out the wine, and then suppose someone came along and accused the master of the feast of being opposed to festivities and being opposed to the feast. Well, of course, that's not what he's doing. He's rejecting the corrupted wine because it was the thing that was ruining the celebration. One of the things that we don't understand is the fact that uh, the Puritans were opposed to much of what was done at Christmas time three and four centuries ago because we have no idea of how Christmas was celebrated at that time. We think, when we think of Christmas, we think of to speak bluntly, we think of the Unitarian version that has come down to us over the course of the last 100 years. Uh, Tiny Tim saying "God bless us, everyone," and Scrooge having a change of heart. No redemption, no forgiveness of sin, but just sheer gutting. I'm going to change. I'm going I'm to think about my ways and turn around. And, and isn't it a happy time of year to be doing this? And this is—it's um, a wonderful life t- approach to redemption. You know, I just think over my ways and I think a little bit differently, and if you just look on the sunny side, then all of a sudden everything is happy and and something this has something to do with sleigh bells and and cold temperatures and so and so forth. And if we get enough snow and enough sentimentalism into the mix, we can all feel the real power of a Unitarian Christmas. Well, this Unitarian Christmas is not the Christian celebration of the Incarnation or the ramifications of the Incarnation. Nor is it uh, anything like what was done in many of the superstitious observances of Christmas in the centuries around the time of the Reformation. Much has been made of the Puritan opposition to Christmas, as though the Puritans were simply the prototype of Scrooge. You know, they were whatever, however a Puritan would say, "Bah, humbug." That's what they were doing, and they said "Bah, humbug" because they were just they they just had. Uh, hearts like little pieces of beef jerky or something. And, and so they opposed Christmas and they opposed uh, festivities and they opposed celebration, uh, etc., anyone who knows the first thing about the Puritans knows that they were not at all opposed to the idea of commemoration or celebration and were not opposed at all to the idea of feasting and drinking and the when the pilgrims landed in New England the first building they built was a brewery I think the second was a church and so they 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 just got right to business and they they had no problem celebrating they had no problem with the flesh they had no problem with the flesh materially considered they had a big problem with the flesh as Paul opposes it, the, when in Galatians, when he says the works of the flesh are plain. George Gillespie, who was a, uh, a Scottish theologian and one of the commissioners from Scotland to the Westminster Assembly, quoted William Perkins, who was uh, an early English Puritan and a great theologian on this, saying that, that the feast of Christ's nativity is not spent in praising the name of God, but in rifling, which is uh, raffling, dicing, carding, masking, mumming, like a pantomime sort of thing, and an all licentious liberty, for the most part, as though it were some heathen feast of Ceres or Bacchus. In other words, they, the, the problem they had was that they were faced with a celebration that, for all intents and purposes, had been overwhelmed with corruptions. We face a similar problem with um, the end of October. How many people say, oh, it's All Hallows' Eve. Tomorrow is All Saints' Day. How many people say that? No, what you see are witches and pumpkins and uh, all sorts of ghoulish things. Uh, even Christians think once a year it's all right to dress up in the uniform of the other team and, and, and go out and try and scare people with things that they ought not to be doing. And, but the, Halloween comes from the phrase All Hallows' Eve. Right? But that's not how it's celebrated. That's, for all intents and purposes... All Hallows' Eve is not All Hallows' Eve anymore. It's Halloween. It's, it's a different celebration. And many Christians today um, will back away from it and they'll do, a, you know, Reformation Day things or a harvest celebration or something, anything other than Halloween. The Puritans had the same sort of difficulty with Christmas. Christmas three and four hundred years ago was celebrated with much drunkenness, much licentiousness, much carrying on, and to this day, that tradition is, has either been preserved or has resurfaced in the office the uh, Christmas party where everybody drinks too much and, and starts acting in an extremely foolish way and that 's what they were up against and when the Puritan said we don 't want to have any part of this, this is what they were dealing with the problem is comparable to us objecting to the drunkenness and fornication at Mardi Gras in New Orleans, let's say, only to be told that we have a problem with the resurrection, because Lent is the preparation for Easter, and Mardi Gras is the last blowout before you give things up for Lent. So if you're going to celebrate Easter, you've got to celebrate Lent, according to the minds of some, and in order to celebrate Lent properly, you've got to give up something that's special to you, drink up, give up drinking beer for Lent. So if you're going to give up drinking beer for Lent, then you better get a bunch of drinking in the night before Lent starts. And that's, of course, the Mardi Gras. And so if you said, suppose you said, I, I've got a problem with downtown New Orleans turning into a drunken brawl. Suppose someone said, well, you've got a problem with the resurrection. I think you're a Gnostic. No, this is not Gnosticism. This is just basic moral decency. God's people have always had a problem with this kind of abuse. There is a dry... Um, there's a, a dry withdrawal from all bodily celebration on the one hand. And then there is the, the peop- you have the people who don't know when to stop. They don't know when to say when. They don't know how to set boundaries or parameters on their behavior. That was one problem that the Puritans had with the celebration of Christmas. Another problem, and this is something that we don't understand as Americans because we have been accustomed for 200 years to what might be called the denominational system what might be called the free market of ecclesiastical competition. If you want to start a church what you do is you just go down the street uh, hang out a shingle, rent a storefront, put the name of the church in the yellow pages and and presto you've got a, you've got a church. And then if you can get people to come to it then you're, you're competing in the the marketplace of worship. And we think that this is how it's always been. But in the 1600s, a great deal of the controversy had to do with what form of worship was going to be established as the form of worship for the British Isles. In other words, you you had the Presbyterians who thought that the Church of England ought to be Presbyterian. You had the Anglicans who thought that the Church of England ought to be uh, Anglican, you had those who wanted to go back to Rome but the, the, you had the Congregationalists who wanted the Church of England to adopt their form of government and this is the form of government that would be supported with your tax dollars this is what would be imposed and a lot of the controversy had to do not with whether your neighbor was observing Christmas and you were not but what celebrations would be placed upon you as obligatory binding on the conscience and so we see, uh, in the Reformation, one of the great achievements of the Reformation was the doctrine of what is called the liberty of conscience. And this doctrine of liberty of conscience, rightly understood, is a wonderful blessing. Wrongly understood, it deteriorates into individualism, where, where someone goes off into a corner thinking their own, own thoughts, and nobody can tell them any different. No one can correct them. No one can speak to them because they, they say, well, back here in the corner, I'm, I'm embracing sola scriptura, what they're actually doing is embracing solo scriptura, just me and my Bible, I'm going to think my own thoughts, I will listen to no human teacher except for me. Well that's the doctrine of liberty of conscience corrupted. But the doctrine of liberty of conscience, rightly understood, goes this way. On their own authority men do not have the right to bind the conscience of another in areas not addressed by the word of God. As the Westminster Confession of Faith has it in the 20th chapter what does this mean the short form is this in this context it means there's a difference between holy days and holidays and in between both of them and uh, in in between both of them we have civil days off fourth of July Memorial Day that sort of thing but uh, this is how it works according to the scriptures according to the Bible we have one holy day and that's the Lord's Day that's today once a, once a week, we have a holy day set apart by the word of God on the authority of God. God says that this is the day my son rose from the dead. This is the day he appeared to his disciples. He then appeared to them the next Sunday. He poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which that year which was a Sunday. The Lord established the first day of the week as a weekly Easter. The Lord established the the day Sunday as a day on which we are to worship. And the authority for this comes from the Bible. Now, if we say, well, I want to uh, make someone come to the Christmas Eve service. We have this service here. Suppose someone abandoned the gathering of ourselves together. Someone said, I'm not going to have anything to do with you anymore. He started staying home Sunday morning. The Christian brothers and the elders have the right to go to him and say, Brother, you really need to cease your Separation. You need to come back and join us. You, need, you don't have the option of separating yourself from us because God's word requires you to worship together with us. We are the people of God. You're together with us. You must be here. And when they bind his conscience in this way, they are binding his conscience with Scripture backing them up. Scripture tells them that this is what he ought to be doing. So when... If a man starts committing adultery and a brother rebukes him, the brother is not overstepping his bounds. If someone starts stealing from his neighbor and someone rebukes him, that rebuke is not legalism. It's not going outside of the Bible. What you're doing is saying, brother, I'm coming to you with an open Bible, and I'm telling you that God's word says this is what you must do. I didn't think this up. I didn't come up with it on my own. So consequently, if someone is told, you must worship with God's people, either in this community of saints or in another church, you must be attached to God's people and you must worship on the Lord's day. That's not going outside the boundaries that God has established. But if someone had a problem with, let's, let's say they had um, difficulty, scruples about observing a Good, a good Friday service or uh, a Christmas Eve service because they can't find Christmas Eve services in the Bible. And they said, I'm going to worship faithfully on the Lord's Day with everybody, but I, I, can't, I don't see uh, Christmas Eve services. And in our house, we don't celebrate Christmas. It's just another day. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, your sermon on this or the common celebration of Christians around me is not compelling. I don't see it, and we'd rather not do that. The Word of God requires us to leave Him alone leave your brother alone. We have no authority to bind the conscience of another on such issues when the authority for the celebration is not found in scripture. A comparable situation is this. In, uh, in the book of Esther, you have the recording of the, the establishment of the Jewish festival of Purim, which was the celebration after um, uh, Haman's abortive assault on the Jewish people. Now, in the Old Testament, you had festivals established by God, the Feast of Tabernacles, Passover, Pentecost. These were established in the law. The Bible said that the, a faithful Jew had to celebrate. But if a faithful Jew kept those festivals of obligation but didn't celebrate Purim or didn't celebrate the time of Christ, let's say he didn't celebrate Hanukkah, which was the celebration of, of lights, which was a, a marking the... Uh, successful war against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and the cleansing of the temple. Hanukkah and Purim are not given in the law. Purim is recorded; the the celebration, the establishment of it is recorded in the Bible, but the Bible doesn't command celebration of it. And ha- the celebration of Hanukkah is recorded in the Bible when John when John records that Jesus went down to Jerusalem at the time of the Festival of Lights, which was Hanukkah. Jesus participated in if you can speak this way, a, a Jewish equivalent of Christmas. Hanukkah was a, a celebration that the law did not require, but which the church had established. Now, the doctrine of liberty of conscience basically says that if we are not obeying the scriptures straight out, we cannot compel anyone. We cannot come to them and say, you must do this, all the principles that Paul gives us in Romans 14 and other places about not receiving a brother to disputes over debatable things all of those things apply. The most you can do if someone says well we don't don't celebrate Christmas in our house and there's no presents for anybody and we're not going to come to the Christmas Eve service and we're not going to do do this, the most you can do is perhaps feel sorry for them and keep that expression to yourself. Don't trouble your brother don't get into wrangles about that sort of thing. And that's what the doctrine of liberty of conscience is about. But sometimes those who have problems with the celebration of Christmas will say, that well, it's more, there's more difficulty than that. A charge of, this, it's a more difficult issue than that. The charge of syncretism is often made. The Christian year is thought to be the residue of long-forgotten compromises with paganism. So in the early years, it said as the, as the Christian church fell off the edge of the earth is when the last apostles died, as some extreme American Christians say, or as some moderate American Christians say, it didn't fall off the edge of the earth until the three or 400s. But everybody sort of agrees that, the, that God's presence among his people and the Holy Spirit's work among his people just sort of uh, vanished for a 1,000 years and didn't reappear again until the, uh, Kentucky in 1799 or something. And they say, well, this, this mentality is what's called a restorationist mentality, that the true work of God disappeared, and then we've recovered it now here in our day. In this model, if you have this paradigm of church history, it's very easy to assert that in 300 or so, the church became hopelessly corrupt, everyone uh, was apostate, no one did anything that they ought to have done, and so, so on. Now, in many cases, we have to acknowledge that corruptions did creep into the church and there, there is an overgrown and encrusted form of the church year where this is the case, where you can say that this particular feast day was actually simply a transformed pagan celebration and someone just switched the names and, and they just continued on with the celebrations the, the way they had done before with certain names, names changed to protect the guilty. But in a number of notable instances, the reverse is true. In other words, these commemorations are not Christian commemorations of earlier Christian compromises with paganism, but are actually commemorations of triumphant Christian uh, defeats over paganism. For just one great example, the Christmas wreath. Many of you have Christmas wreaths, fur wreaths on your door. Well, let me tell you why you have a Christmas wreath on your door, And this should give you an indication of how we should approach these things. You should be able to go to your neighbor who doesn't know the Lord, or maybe they're a baptized nominal believer, and, and they've got a wreath on their do- door, and they don't, they don't know why. And you can say, you know where that wreath, this wreath came from? You know what, what this celebration means? Boniface, who was the missionary to the Germans, he lived from 680 to 754. He was a missionary to the Germans, and, and when he came to them, there was a great oak tree on Mount um, Gutenberg, that was dedicated to the god Thor, the Norse god Thor. And Boniface, when he um, had been through college and seminary had taken an inadequate number of anthropology courses and, and didn't know that when you came to an indigenous people that you were supposed to leave everything intact and everything alone. And, and he discovered that they had this tree that was sacred to Thor. And there was a showdown between the gods, the god of Christ, the Christian faith that Boniface was preaching, and Thor, the, 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 one of the Norse uh, gods, part of the, their pantheon. So Boniface said, well, They've got this tree that they worship Thor with. I will chop it down. So he went and got an axe and announced publicly this is what he's going to do. He was going to go chop down the uh, oak sacred to Thor. And he walked up there, uh, sort of imposing his um, views. And all the worshipers of Thor stood around to see if Thor was going to defend himself. And Thor didn't. Boniface just chopped the tree down, and over the oak went, and he preached the gospel to them and said, "See, your gods are powerless." Now, this Boniface had some faults and failings, but compromise with paganism was not one of them. All right, I, would to God that our missionaries would show as much backbone with regard to the various forms of modern paganism that Boniface did. Boniface was not a compromi- compromiser with paganism. He was not a compromiser at all. He, he, he didn't have an armed posse around him, he didn't have a, a military detachment, he didn't have arms, he had an axe, but that was for the tree. Right? Boniface later was martyred when he, he was attacked by pagans for his preaching, and he, he told the men with him, we're not going to fight, we're just going to be martyred, and they attacked, and he was, uh, he was killed later. He was a martyr, he was not a compromiser. He chopped down this tree. Three days later, on the first Sunday of Advent in the Christmas season, three days later, after he chopped down the oak tree, a boy came from a neighboring village saying that there was going to be a human sacrifice in the neighboring village. And according to the story, the boy who told him it was his sister who was going to be sacrificed, Boniface ran to the place and it was a fir grove where the sacrifice was taking place, he intervened, he, he ran in, stopped the sacrifice from happening, saved the girl's life, knocked the druid priest back, and then preached the gospel to them. He said, don't do this, don't worship pagan gods. He then took the sacrificial knife and went around to the grove of trees and cut off fir branches and gave them to everybody to take home to put on their hearth to commemorate Calvary. Now that's not a compromise with paganism. That's the kind of refusal to compromise with paganism that we know nothing about. This was a victory from battle. You might say, well, those northern Europeans, they had trees and pine branches and everything. It was all part of their worship. Uh, Yeah, yeah, they worshiped the oak tree. They did. But when a man comes home from war, one of the things he does... Let's say a man came back from the Second World War, from fighting for years in Europe. And he takes his grandson, a great-grandson, into the attic and he shows him a German helmet. He shows him a, a helmet that he took in battle and he brought back from the war. Does the boy then say, Grandpa, were you a Nazi? What are you doing with a, what are you doing with a Nazi helmet? If, 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 you're, if you've got this Nazi helmet, doesn't that make you a Nazi? He says, No, son. No. This is part of the spoils of battle. Every thought captive. We take it all. The Lord Jesus Christ claims everything. And so this is what This is what Boniface did. He he said, look, this grove of trees is sacred to your God. You were going to sacrifice someone in this grove, and I took the sacrificial knife, and I cut off these boughs, and I gave them to you so that you would know that Christ died on on a cross. Christ died on a tree for your sins. That is not compromise. That is not uh, what we... uh, and that, that is not what we are accustomed to think of our, our Christmas customs coming from. Another example, of course, the inventor of Christmas tree lights. Why do you have Christmas tree lights on your Christmas tree? Well, Martin Luther invented those. Why, why, did, why, why did Martin Luther come up with Christmas tree lights? Because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. We want to tell everybody that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. You, t- you tell your unbelieving neighbor, you know, why, you know what the story is behind this wreath? You know, you know where this came from? Why, you know why you've got lights all over your house? No, I've been wondering that myself, you might say. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the light that brings light into the world for every man. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. That's what this means. Now, of course, we have to strike a balance here. The, the, at the time of the Reformation, the mentality of, if one's good, two's better, had taken over completely. and. We have to say that it's possible to err in every direction. As I don't tire of saying, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. Today, the Roman Catholic Church has feast days, globally recognized feast days, number over 160. So over 160 global feast days are recognized, and then you have to throw in all the local festivals, and pretty soon you, re- you have to come to realize that if every day is special, nothing is special anymore. You, it, it starts to become... It starts running to excess. It starts looking like a bad habit. And this is the way it was in the, at the time of the Reformation. And the continental reformers decided that the great points of the gospel should still be celebrated in conjunction with the rest of Christendom, but without getting entangled in a church year that was honestly over the top, you, you, where you couldn't swing a cat without hitting a, a saint's day, and everything was, now what day is this, and is it Wednesday, and oh, we, we missed another one, and... and without getting caught into that kind of problem. So the Continental Reformers called these the five evangelical feast days. The feast days were Christmas. The, the Christian year begins with Advent building up to Christmas. Christmas, then Good Friday, then Easter, then Ascension, and then Pentecost. These were the five evangelical feast days, and they occupied just half the year. If, if Those of you who have a book of common prayer or who... Read through read through uh, a book of common prayer for devotional purposes as, as I do. It's a wonderful book. We'll notice that you've got uh, half the year is you've got these feast days crowded into half the year, and then after Pentecost there's Trinity Sunday, and then the rest of the year there's there's no feast days like this. And the, and the reason for it is half the year was dedicated to remembering the acts of God. What has God done? God has visited us, and that's what Christmas means, the incarnation, that's what it's talking about. And then of course, Good Friday is the commemoration of the Lord's passion, the Lord's death. and then Easter, the commemoration of his resurrection, which we do on an annual basis, just as we commemorate His resurrection on a weekly basis on the Lord's day. And then he ascended into heaven and that's commemorated, and then he poured out his holy Spirit on his church. Church, and that is commemorated. Some people might say want to consider Good Friday and Ascend, uh, Good Friday and Easter together as all part and parcel of one holiday, and then Trinity Sunday is added, that begins the second half of the year. Even the English theologians at Westminster, who took a harder line on this than the reformers of the continent, saw that it was lawful for the church to establish days, as they put it, for thanksgiving upon special occasions. And this is in the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 21. It's interesting, this is important, because the text that they cited for this was Esther 9.22, which records the establishment of Purim, which I mentioned earlier, an annual celebration. And we might want to add something like Thanksgiving. In other words, the Puritans didn't just say, well, it's okay to just pick a day and have a day of feasting and celebration. They said it was all right to pick a day and have that kind of celebration annually, there's, there's no problem with that. The only problem with that would arise if you bound someone's conscience. If someone found himself being disciplined by the church because he didn't have a Thanksgiving supper, if he found himself disciplined because he, he didn't do something, then the church has overstepped her bounds and the church is disciplining something, someone for contradicting the word of man simply. But men do have the authority to, to establish these commemorative festivals. And this leads to the next point. And I want us to consider this particularly, us as American Christians at this time. Because we live in time, because we live in moments and days and weeks and months and years, taking us back to the text, those moments, days, months, weeks, years, are either going to be dedicated to Christ or not. They will either be taken captive in his name or they will not. This is one of those inescapable concepts where the issue is not whether but which. It's not whether there will be a law for people to abide by, it's which law they will abide by. It's not whether a society will have a God, it's which God they will have. It's not whether but which. You can't ever say, well, we're not going to choose. We're not going to have the God of the Bible, but we're not going to open the door to demonism. Well, no, you don't have that option. You're, you're either going to serve the God of the Bible or you're going to serve his adversaries. Jesus said, he who's not with me scatters. If you don't gather with him, you scatter. There's, there's no middle ground. There's no neutral place to go. There's no place for you to, to declare yourself a non-combatant. If you don't want the word of God to govern, then you're saying that you want the word of man to govern. If you don't want the law of God, then you're saying you want the law of man. If you don't want the gospel of God, that means you want false false gospels for man. You don't have an area where you can go where there is no collision uh, between the two. You can't go anywhere where there is no antithesis. To reject the one is to embrace the other. It's that simple. To reject the one is to embrace the other. Either you will embrace some Christian year or you're embracing a pagan year. It's that simple. Either it's dedicated to Christ or it isn't. It's either offered up to God or it isn't. Because Christians no longer honor the Lord's Day on a weekly basis. The world has rushed to fill it with a frenetic 24-7 lifestyle woven around five days of work and two days of leisure. That's how pagans think. Work for five days, frantically work for for five days, and, oh, it's Friday, you know, thank God it's Friday, but God is not the God of the Bible. It's thank my personal... Um, God of uh, leisure, the God of Winnebago's or fishing trips or whatever it is. So thank God that it's Friday and I can go off and, and play for two days and then, oh, Monday, a horrible Monday, and you come back and you work for five days and you take off for two days and this is how people live their lives on the squirrel cage run of modernity and they just, they're just frantic. This is the alternative to the Christian practice of resting for one and working for six, Resting before God for one, and then working faithfully before him for six. And you either go one way or the other. You're either, going to do, you're either going to observe the week the way God wants you to observe the week, or something else will fill that void. In the same way, because we have not seen the passage of the year under the lordship of Christ, we find ourselves marking time with dates like Labor Day, Memorial Day, the 4th of July, Martin Luther King Day, and so forth. Christians must define the year in an explicitly Christian way and then face the objections, or they must acquiesce in the secularization of time. You must develop a Christian year. Now, you might say, well, doesn't... if?" Um, If you're not seriously maintaining that Jesus was actually born on December 25th or that this was the actual day and so forth, aren't you saying that the word of the church is just simply in some extent being arbitrary and can't I just go off and do my own arbitrary church year and can't I commemorate different Bible events on my own? Yeah, yeah, you could, but you're not going to be working in tandem with your brothers and sisters in Christ as we face the, the secularists and the pagans in our time, in our day. We have to understand that in our day, the state is sacred. The state is God. The state makes all-encompassing claims. The state makes global claims. The state demands your children. Jesus said, for example, that your children bear the image of God. You can render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar got his picture on the dollar bill, and Caesar got his picture on that quarter. So you can send money to Washington, but God has his image on your children. You can't render your children unto Caesar because Caesar doesn't have his image on them. But we live in a time when Caesar, when the state makes claims about everything. They make claims about your workday. They may claim they tell you how long you can work during the week, they tell you when your day is supposed to start, they have all sorts of regulations that govern economic activity, they have regulations that govern your calendar, they have regulations that sort of impose a secularist mindset upon us. This has happened because we have believed that it's possible for a void to exist in this world. We have believed that it's possible for us to not honor, honor what God has done in the world, and then expect the other side to play fair and not honor their deities. But they do honor their deities. They are more consistent in this than we are. They love Martin Luther King Jr. more than you love Jesus Christ. They love Labor Day more than you think about the ascension. They, want to, they, they think more about Labor Day and the worker in a socialistic sense. They care more about that and know more about what that holiday's about than Christians know. What's ascension for? Uh, when, when's ascension? When did that happen? I don't know. I, don't know. I, I know when Veterans Day is, though. I know when Memorial Day is. I know. But when's Pentecost? Oh, beats me. Why is that important, we say. We are eating our own cooking. We are under this bondage because we have thought that it was possible to refuse to take every thought captive. Now, you might say, well, how do you, are you saying that your church year, your Christian year, is infallible? No, the church has made, I think, many mistakes. I've pointed to some of them that I think the church has made over the course of 2,000 years. Nobody's claiming infallibility for the church, but I'm claiming that the church is the church. I'm not claiming that the church is inerrant, but I'm saying that the church is the body of Christ. And, and our allegiance is with our people. Our allegiance is with the head of the church, our allegiance is with the church, with the body of Christ, and our allegiance should not fundamentally be with what the statists and the secularists come up with. And if our brethren in Christ have erred by having too many festivals and, you know, they've just gone too far, then we labor within the church to back it off to a a more reasonable level so that we can preserve the idea of Christian celebration and we can preserve the idea of Christians dedicating their time to god the father through jesus christ first and foremost primarily that's what we're after that's what we want to do so what are the applications what do we how do we to live in the light of this first obey the pauline principle if someone doesn't get this or if someone has gotten it they understood what i've been saying but they don't buy it they say i don't you know i just don't buy it i don't think i'm i'm happy to sing hymns and i'm happy to sing Christmas carols at Christmas time on the Lord's Day, but I don't want to go to Christmas Eve service because I don't want to participate in will worship. Leave your brother alone. Don't bind the conscience of another. We have the option. We have the liberty. We're not fighting over what is going to be binding on individual consciences. But pray for your brother at the same time. Don't, Don't twist his arm. Don't manipulate him. Don't Do things that are going to make his life miserable. Don't treat him as though you received him into the church just to dispute with him. At the same time, pray pray that the church would wake up. Because we need to understand that the secularists don't care about binding your conscience. They will bind your conscience they will say, you've got to observe this, and and if you don't observe this, then you're going to be arraigned for hate crimes or for some form of racism or this, because you're not kowtowing in the way that they demand that you kowtow. And the reason we are in this difficulty, the reason we have this problem, is because we we have not observed the boundaries set by Scripture for us, not binding our brother's conscience, and at the same time acting with all the liberty that we have in Christ to dedicate the year to Christ. To open the, the year with prayer. To celebrate the advent of Christ. And Christ came in our midst. He was a baby. He came in order to die on the cross. Let's commemorate that. Let's remember that annually. We, we are spiritually dense. We need to be reminded constantly and regularly. If we don't do that, if we say, let's just, live, let's just leave this year a great, big, open vacuum you're going to find things far worse than ascension being imposed on your conscience. A Christian won't impose that on your conscience. A Christian won't do that consistently. If he does, he's he's behaving in a way that's contrary to the word of God. But the secularists have no such scruples. They could care less about liberty of conscience. They don't have those scruples. And the reason we are losing our liberties is because we have not dedicated our time, our moments, our days, our weeks, our months, and our years... To the glory of God. Secondly, cultivate holiness of mind. Do not slander those days that you're pretending to honor. In other words, if you're celebrating Christmas, then celebrate it like a Christian. Don't don't set, um, set yourself up for an occasion where either enemies outside the Christian church or those who are opposed to Uh, Christmas celebrations are are given occasion to be critical or uh, are given occasion, if they're outside the church, to blaspheme. If, If we have liberty here, then the liberty we enjoy should be toward the cultivation of holiness. Holiness of mind, holiness of habits, holiness of joy. And so we should be celebrating Christmas basically like Christians. And this means that we must not enter into the materialistic frenzy, on the one hand, of these people who do not know God, nor should we withdraw to a Gnostic, ethereal sort of celebration. We should, there should be presents, and there should be food, there should be wine, there should be celebration in abundance, all to the glory of God. It's holiness, drinking wine, but no drunkenness, receiving presents and giving presents, but no covetousness or greed, which is idolatry, In other words, cultivate holiness. What does the Lord Jesus think about this present that I'm giving? Or this present that I'm receiving? Or this food that I'm preparing? Or this food that I'm eating? How how can I dedicate this to God? And how can I prepare myself to to dedicate it to God? Cultivate holiness of mind as you you prepare to um, honor God through these things. And then lastly celebrate with a free and a clear conscience. If you can't see your way free to celebrate this holiday, if you if you just don't see it, then brother, peace be with you. Now God bless you. If you can't celebrate Christmas, that's just fine and merry christmas. Yeah, no offense. Right? That's yeah. We're not binding your conscience. We don't even want to think about binding your conscience. We want to we want to receive you as a brother in Christ and we want you to receive us as a brother of Christ. Don't Don't get entangled in these things. Uh, Paul lays out the principles very clearly. But for those of you, and this is most of you, those of you who don't have any qualms about celebrating Christmas, do so with a free and a clean conscience. This is because God has established a gospel in the world. Jesus Christ was conceived in, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He spent nine months there in the womb, just like You and I all spent nine months in the wombs of our mothers. He spent that time there. He was born. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. He cried for milk, just like all of us did. He was fed by his mother, tenderly, carefully, by his mother. He grew up. He wasn't lying in the manger thinking, oh, another 30 years to go. He wasn't God God in a man suit. The incarnation was real. He was a true man. Truly God and truly man, and the incarnation brought these two natures together in a, in a glorious, mysterious way that we cannot comprehend. He came to earth, took on the form of a, of, a, of a baby boy in order to grow up into a man, a perfect sinless man, so that he might die on the cross, thus securing salvation for all of his people. That's what he did. And this is what we're commemorating. We commemorate it. He came. He did this for us. This is the gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel. And then we, this culminates in the, in the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, where he, he was born of a virgin, grew up, lived a perfect, sinless life, obeyed, was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, was buried three days and three nights, in the heart of the earth, in the grave, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he was seated at the right hand of God the Father. All kingdoms, nations, tribes, languages were given to him at that point. And the, the psalmist says, ask of me, In, in the psalmist says of him, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And Jesus says, yes, I'll, I'll take them all, thank you, I purchased them with my blood. And I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit upon my church and they're going to scatter into all the world and they're going to preach the gospel to every creature just like I told them to. Let me end with this note. We as Reformed believers often have a very high view of our own depravity. We have a high view of our own foibles and our sinfulness. We, we submit to the teaching of the Word of God and it beats us up and, and we look around and we see that Many churches, are, they've given themselves over to various follies and so forth, and North America is covered with all sorts of goo churches, and people are not taking the worship of God seriously the way they ought. And so you, when you look, with this mentality that you have, you look at the church of Jesus Christ, and all you see is a ragtag band of losers, you know, broken arms and bandages around their head and hobbling around on crutches, and some of them lying down, and everything's in disarray. And you walk up to them. If you, if you understand what the Bible says, you walk up to them and say, what, what are you all doing? And one of them in the front rank, all bandaged up just as much a piece of work as the rest, grins at you and says, you know what? We're conquering the world. That's what we're doing. That's why we're here. We're conquering the world. Jesus Christ is the light that gives light to every man. He didn't try to do that. He didn't try to save the world. He came into the world, and we celebrate this. He came into the world because at Bethlehem, we have the salvation of the world. Look at that. A baby. Who would have thought of that? When we look at the church, we say, it's a mess. Who would have thought of that? Well, God. Who would have thought of a baby? Who would have thought to tell the the first, I know, the first ones I'm going to tell about this are shepherds. Why didn't he have the mayor of Bethlehem come down? Why didn't he have the governor? Well, Herod wanted to come, but... He told all the wrong people. He called all the wrong people. And that's you. That's me. We're the wrong people. And what are we doing? We're conquering the world because Jesus Christ was born at Bethlehem. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we are in the midst of a season that some defy because they hate your gospel but which most simply celebrate in confusion. We pray that you would help us to keep the gospel straight in our hearts and our minds, that we would live that gospel in our families and in front of our neighbors, and that they would ask us to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We pray that you would give many such opportunities this Christmas season, and we ask that the name of your Son might be glorified. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. You can find that talk and the rest of the audio collection titled Evangelical Feast Days on the Canon app.